0: So turn your Bibles to 1 Peter, chapter 1, please. 1 Peter 1, and I'm going to be reading verses 10 through 12. So we are continuing in our study of the doctrines of grace in the area of unconditional election, and we are still exploring proof from reason. But as I mentioned last time that we were together, we're going to not stray very far from Scripture um, in discovering the proof from reason. So the question that we left off with last time was, it may be asked, Why does God save some and not others? Well, in honesty, that belongs to the secret counsels of God. However, let's read 1 Peter 1, 10-12, where Peter writes, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Now, note that notice that uh, Peter's talking about the prophets that are part of the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament here. He's not talking about current-day prophets, because they prophesied, past tense, about the grace that was to be, the grace that had not yet come in their time, but had come upon the church. <clears throat> Continuing, verse 11, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating— when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you, through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So why does one receive and another does not, when neither actually deserve to receive? We're not told this. What we know is that God has been pleased to bestow his electing grace upon us, and that will always remain a matter of adoring wonder, at least in this world in our time. We can only give thanks and praise and exclaim with Paul, like he does in Romans 11, 33-35, where he writes, O the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways think about that who in this life is unable excuse me is able to uncover the unsearchable and the inscrutable that Paul writes about no one you wouldn't be using these terms if these things were discoverable he goes on in verse 34 for who has known the mind of god think about that can the finite comprehend The infinite. No, that's that's not possible. Or who has been his counselor? Who does God ask for advice? We have no record of God ever needing anyone's advice. God is completely self-contained, if you will. Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Well, what does God need? What can we give him? Can we bribe him? Many people think so. And we hear of people all the time that make these bargains with God that, well, God, if you get me out of this scrape, I promise that I will never do this again. Or I will go to church or whatever, you know, every Sunday. I will do this, this, or this. they, They attempt to bribe God. So we think we can do that, but we can't. So... The reason that God did not elect all to eternal life really was not because he did not wish to save all. It's not that he doesn't want to save all people. I think it's important that we understand that. But there's some some very vital nuances in that. But he does not save all people for a reason that cannot be fully grasped or explained. And teaching a section like this, a topic like this, is a bit difficult because going into it, there could be people that would think, well, I'm, I hope that we finally get an answer to this. And then to have your teacher say, well, you know what, there really is no answer to it is somewhat less than satisfying, but we must be honest, right? And, and we're going to look at why, you know, why we aren't given these answers and and how to best navigate um, the thought process when when we talk about this stuff. So think about this. If we had universal election, that is, if God saved every single person, that would have been inconsistent with God's perfect righteousness. We know that. That's, That's fairly apparent, isn't it? That a completely righteous God is not going to save everybody no matter what they do, when we are in this life and we long for justice, we cry out for justice, and we, as God's adopted children, we know that he will do what is right, that he will bring justice. We see people being victimized. We experience at times victimization ourselves. The world is undoubtedly, honestly, it's unfair. There's, there, there's, there's no real equity in it. Um, there's different rules for different people, so we, but we, we're promised that things will be made right. And the day of the eschaton, if it was to come, and God was to say, you know what, it's all, it's all good. Um, doesn't matter what you did, doesn't matter you know, uh, whether you repented, doesn't matter if you, if you just destroyed everything in your life and you victimized everybody, just doesn't matter, you're all welcome. Well, that would turn righteousness, God's perfect righteousness, on its head, wouldn't it? And that, that's something, I think, that we must keep in mind. <laughs> and, and really, we can't object that God's election is arbitrary and without reason. God's reasons for saving particular people while passing others by hasn't been revealed to us. But look at what Daniel says in Daniel 4.35. Daniel 4.35. It kind of puts everything, I think, in perspective for us. Even though, you know, we may think, well, those words are kind of harsh, but we've got to deal with that, right? Daniel 4.35. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will, talking about God, among the host of heaven. That's all the angelic celestial beings. And among the inhabitants of the earth, both realms, the spiritual and the material realm. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? No one is to question God. Now the the, the little harshness there, I just want to make a comment at that. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. That doesn't mean that, it's a a comparison. You understand it's a comparison between mortals and between the one true God, right? That in comparison, we're nothing. Although we are created, we are as image bearers. If we are God's image bearers, we cannot be nothing. We cannot be totally irrelevant. We're created for a reason, but we are accounted as nothing in comparison to God. And amongst these image bearers, some are ordained as sons, like we read in Ephesians 1.5, according to the purpose of his will, that it is God's decision. It's nothing that man does. However, that does not mean that God has no reasons for choosing one and passing over another. It's not, um, you know, just counting off. It's not eeny, meeny, miny, mo. you're out, you're in sort of thing. I'll give you an analogy from history um, that maybe will help uh, illuminate this a bit. In the days of Imperial Rome, the great Roman legions, there was a method of discipline amongst the legions. And it was called uh, decimation. That's where we get our term, you get decimated. So if a legion was found guilty of a serious charge, like disobeying orders... Or cowardliness, which basically in the Roman legion would be the same thing. If you don't obey your orders, you're a coward. If you don't take that territory you're told to take, you are um, insubordinate and you're a coward. That legion could then be ordered to be decimated. They would line the legion up and they would count off. Every tenth man would be decimated. So if you were the tenth in your rank, too bad. You step forward and you're executed. So one-tenth of the legion is executed, and it's completely by chance as to who dies and who lives. But that stands to serve as a very motivating example to the rest of the legionnaires that they better obey orders and that they better follow through and not display cowardliness, or they're going to lose more of their comrade-in-arms, and perhaps they also might lose their life. So think about this. This is how we connect it. Every tenth man was chosen for a reason. But the reasons are not in, within every man chosen. So that that every tenth man most likely, most probably did include soldiers that were very loyal, very dedicated, not cowards, and faithfully carried out orders but because they were part of a larger group that, in effect, was in rebellion against their authority, they were chosen, and they suffered as a result. So, when we talk about God's election, <clears throat> undoubtedly, we, must, we have to realize this, that God has the best of reasons for choosing one and rejecting another even though he's not revealed to us those reasons. Like Abraham says in Genesis 18, Shall not the judge of the earth do what is just? Which is, obviously it's a rhetorical question that Abraham is posing. He doesn't expect God to answer him. But the obvious answer that what, what Abraham is, sa- is saying is God is just that yes, God will do what is just, and I trust. Abraham, saying, I trust in you, Yahweh, that you will do what is just as far as these cities, these evil cities that are in rebellion, Sodom and Gomorrah, as far as whether you save or whether you destroy. So now we come to our next section, and we're going to talk about could election be conditional? Do we have conditional election? Well, I'm going to give you a hint. We're talking about unconditional elections, so you know where this is going to go, right? But but it's a it's a it's a legitimate question, right? And and really, we should examine both sides of of any argument, right? So we understand it. If we just know the side that um, that is held up as the the doctrine of the early church passed on by the reformers and embraced by us. That's all well and good, and that should be our first step in our journey of faith as good, faithful Christians, understanding good, solid doctrine is important. But once we have that under our belt, and looking out at you guys, yeah, I think most of you really do have it under your belt. You know, you're mature Christians. You're very serious about your faith. You know, you, you, you attempt to understand and learn. You hear the word preached whenever you can. At that point, it's valuable for us to look at other arguments and see why they don't hold up. You know, where, where are the holes in them? Now, We don't do this merely so that we can be the best on a debate, that we can win arguments. We do it because it solidifies our faith, number one. And number two, I think it brings glory to God because we understand the truth, the solid, rock-solid truth of his word and how our forefathers in the faith, how they've interpreted it and that we can rely on that interpretation. And I think, I think that's very important that, that we learn that. So, can election be conditional? And we know that that is the belief, the doctrine, if you will, of. Um, A large number, maybe the vast majority of Christians nowadays, at least in in our country, hasn't always been so. So what's, what's incorporated in answering this question is this idea that faith and good works are the fruits and proof of election, not the basis. If we get that swapped around, if we switch it around and we say um, our, our good fruits and our good works are the reason that we're saved, then we're talking about conditional election. So it's almost like a question-answer sort of thing. Um, so if, if we believe, and if the Bible demonstrates to us that the, our good works and our fruits flow out of God's unconditional election, then this is kind of put to rest. You see, it's, it's not, election's not conditional. Now, no one can really argue that election is, in fact, uh, something that we have to deal with, because it's in the Bible. It's, it's there, so we have, to, we have to approach it, we have to wrestle with it. We can't deny it. However, some try to reduce the force of it by... This, by conditional uh, election. And in this idea of conditional election, it's, it's that God bases his election of a person based on God's foresight, what God sees in the future, right? What he sees that person doing. What he sees... As far as that person making a choice, you know, that person is born and God sees his future, his or her future. And at some point, God sees that that person will accept Christ as their Lord and master, their Savior. And then God decides, oh, that's it, you know. Harry made the right choice. He is now amongst my elect. That's how it's explained um, when, when conditional, excuse me, when election is thought, to be conditional. That's how it was explained to me when I was a young Christian. And initially, well, that made sense because I'm in control of everything in my life, right? Even though everything around me was being destroyed because of sinful decisions I was making. However, it made sense to someone who is sinful and fallen. I didn't know what the Bible said about it yet. So God's foreseeing whether or not that person will have faith. Immediately, I think this presents a problem, and this problem makes it so this really is not election that we're talking about, if, if, if we approach it from, from this angle. It's merely, I would say, divine recognition. God's not electing, he's just recognizing us, right? Okay, yeah. You've decided you're elect. Move you over to this column. It's really about men and women electing themselves to salvation, isn't it? If, if we take that stance. And God, what is, how, what is God in all of this? He's just reduced to a spectator. He's just watching. Just And maybe he's hoping for the best for you. Maybe he's rooting for you. But one person from... Uh, was it, uh, I can't remember her name, Anne Graham Watt, um, Billy Graham's uh, daughter. She, she used to say all the time when I here on TV, God is a gentleman. God will not force you to do something you don't want to do. If you don't want to follow Jesus, God's a gentleman, and he'll let you not follow Jesus. So God is a gentlemanly spectator in this regard. A spectator who just responds, like I said, to human action. So think about it, though. Logically, if this is a stance we take, logically and causally, the cause that comes from this, is God's choice then follows man's choice, right? Man is the one initiating. God just follows up behind. An even more potent objection to conditional election, according to... Boyce, James Montgomery Boyce is this. If election is based on what an individual might do, and what God foresees that individual doing, then what could God possibly see in a spiritually dead sinner? We know from Ephesians 2, 1 that we are dead in our sins and trespasses, right? You could watch a dead person as long as you want, and what are you going to see that dead person do? You're not going to see them do anything, right? Why is this language used then in Ephesians? I think it's used for a very purposeful reason. And this is what a lot of our Arminian brothers want to get away from. They, they want to sidestep the use of language. Well, a divinely inspired book written by men who were very good at what they were doing, especially when you talk about Paul, the man approaches genius level in his writings. He's not just randomly picking a word. There's a a reason that he says we are dead in our sins and our trespasses. So, what can a spiritually dead sinner do? Nothing. And by doing nothing, we reject The gospel of Jesus Christ. We take no step in that, we're unable to take that step of faith because we're dead. To suppose that God could see something that is impossible apart from his decreed will is simply not coherent with biblical revelation. That's what the Bible teaches us that what God decrees happens. But what conditional election is telling you is that God does not decree election. That man decides election, and then God comes up behind it. And to be very blunt, it's like someone cooking the books, right? It would be, in our world, it would probably be considered fraudulent activity. It's something that the police would probably investigate. It's like insider trading, right? Right? It's just, it, it, it doesn't work. And it's, and it's amazing that people are comfortable with this. Why, though, are we comfortable with it? Because we are dead in our sins and our trespasses. And it makes us feel as though we're in control, that we are really not so bad, right? We're not that bad, because if I was so bad, I would not be able to pick Jesus as my Savior. I decided, I decided that I... Do not want to be a bad guy anymore. I do not want to be a sinner. I will make this choice. That's what it feels like doesn't it that's how we get that's how we fool ourselves. Honestly, from my experience, you know, I think I'd probably share with you I, it I realized it wasn't that way because it, I was running from God as fast as I could, from the God of the Bible. But God didn't let me go. That God pursued me. Wasn't conditional. So to suppose that the spiritually dead can possess faith denies the doctrine of total depravity, which we've talked about. That, that is radical inability and the original sin. That, that first topic, or second topic after the sovereignty of God, that second topic that we spent a lot of time looking into, it denies that. Do you see how the doctrines of grace are starting to fit together? How one leads to another and you can't have one without the other so there 's also a philosophical objection to uh, conditional election, and since we're talking about uh, um, reasons from logic, nothing wrong with throwing in a little philosophy. God is not against philosophy; philosophy is a love of truth. we worship we are created by the true God who is a god of truth, so we have no problem. God has no problem with truth. The problem that we have with human philosophy is that often will negate the word of God. It will deny and refute divine revelation in favor of what man thinks works out the best. And if you studied philosophy at any level, whether you know in basic courses in high school or in college, you'd see that. Most schools of philosophy are in direct contradiction of, of one another. There are there's unresolvable arguments that philosophers have when they reject the word of God. So what is this philosophical objection to conditional election? <clears throat> it's this. Election cannot rest on God's foreknowledge of what might happen. Because in the sovereignty of God, which we must recognize, that's why we dealt with that first. Sovereignty of God is is paramount to understanding the doctrines of grace. In the sovereignty of God, the only things that can be foreknown are those that are predetermined. Lorraine Bettner puts it this way. The Almighty and All Sovereign Ruler of the universe does not govern himself on the basis of foreknowledge of things that by happen chance may occur. Scripture reveals that divine foreknowledge is connected to divine purpose. God has a purpose in everything He does. If He was coming along behind us, if we were the ones who were deciding, we were the ones decreeing what was going to occur in our eternal destination. God would be coming along beh- behind us like the custodian with his, with his broom and his, and his um, uh, whisk- what do you call that? Dustpan. Dust <laughs> He'd be coming along behind us constantly sweeping up stuff and trying to rearrange things that we've messed up. How does he get to his divine decrees that way? I've yet to figure that out. I I don't know. I have absolutely no answer for that. So God foreknows only because he is predetermined. His foreknowledge is but a transcript, according to Bettner, of his will as to what shall come to pass in the future. And the course that the world takes... By God's providence, the actions he, he, he undergoes to take care of this world, a constant, this constant management, if you will, and guidance of the world, that's what providence is, then his providence is the execution of his all-encompassing will. That's how he carries it out, through his, his providence. So, philosophically, it doesn't make sense. Conditional election. The conditional election. It also seems like if you're talking about God foreknowing something that's going to happen in the future, it's kind of irrelevant to God because to God there is no past or future. Like He's outside time anyway, so it's not doesn't really relevant to God. That's that's an interesting um, comment, and boy, that's a deep subject. If we decided we were going to try and tackle that, right? How does God, who's out of time, work within time, where we are determined to reside, and we have a future? But God, you know, does God have a future? Like Linda's posing. That's a that's a good point. No, he he doesn't, right? I, you know what we? <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna. Thank you, Linda. You're. you're <laughs> I don't know if you're like sprinkling breadcrumbs. Let's see if Ken goes down this one. If I would have taken that bait, boy, my head would have exploded. I would have lost all of you. I would have been rambling, trying to figure out in my head. It would have been a stream of consciousness thought about it. But nice try, Linda. No, that's a a very deep question. And I really, all kidding aside, I appreciate that. And something for us to think about, right? This is good stuff to think about. I love thinking about this stuff. And you've got to really dwell on it, right? It often just doesn't pop up. It's not like, it's not like a Bible trivia quiz, right? Where, where the answer is, you know, um, very apparent. Oh, I know that, you know. It, it's something that we have to wrestle with. And I suggest to you, these are things that we will be wrestling with through our entire Christian life in the material realm. So if you're relatively new to the faith or you're relatively new to getting serious about what it means, don't feel like, um, like I, I just can't get this. I've, I've thought about that uh, topic for uh, a while and I'm not getting it. You're not alone. Uh, this is my point. You're not alone in that. And we should recognize that it's good to wrestle with this stuff. It's good to talk to other brothers and sisters uh, about it. Okay. Let's see where I was. I'm thinking about the future. Okay. So, were we talking about conditional election violating God's character? Did we talk about that yet? No? Okay. I think that's where we are. Conditional election violates God's character. If God does not sovereignly predetermine everything, but only reacts to foreseen events, things that he sees because he's omniscient, he's all-knowing, all-seeing, then that limits his power. His power is limited then. And then he is not omnipotent. He is not all-powerful. Because he's limited, right? So then his omniscience, his all-seeing, is used to arrange his decreed will to fit his foreknowledge. This means that God's sovereignty is fraudulent. He's not sovereign. He just makes us think he's sovereign because he has some of these powers, not all of them, because he can't have omniscience and omnipotence if he's reacting to things that are out of his control in the future that he merely sees. He can only react to them because it's like if if for some reason you had a device that told you what horse was going to win a horse race, and you went to the track and you put all your money on that horse, and he won, and you had insider information or something you know, that was not kosher, then your winnings would be fraudulent. So we're talking kind of along the same thing, along the same lines. Of course, we have to realize that when we're talking about God and we make these correlations and we make these allegories, that they're always going to fall short, right? Because God is unique, isn't he? There's no one, there's nothing like God. So if we compare it to something in our world to try and get us closer in our understanding, it's always going to fall short. It's never going to match up one-on-one. So we understand that. And if God's sovereignty, like I was saying, is fraudulent, then in this case it's man who is sovereign, not God. So the verse that is most often used to support conditional election is Romans 8.29, according to James Montgomery Boyce. And it's worthwhile to look at this as we, as we talk about it. In Romans 8.29, this is what Paul says. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Why would this be used to support unconditional, excuse me, conditional election? Remember, conditional election is what we're we're not in agreement with that. But it's something that many people are in agreement with. So we're examining it. Understand why it really doesn't work. And those that think there's conditional election, what they, what they focus in on in Romans 8.29 is that word for new. So it's a misunderstanding of foreknowledge that causes those who argue for conditional election to think this verse is supportive of their position. Because they're misinterpreting this word. They're thinking it means foresight. But foreknowledge does not mean foresight. Foresight would be if God's just looking ahead, right? He knows what's coming, and so he adjusts according to that. That would be foresight. foresight. By foresight, we mean God's ability to predict the future. So knowing and foreknowledge actually refers to a choice. A choice connected to an intimate relationship. That's the biblical understanding of foreknowledge. It's very different from how we may use the term in our day and age. We have to understand that. Again, we have to put ourselves in the minds, how does an ancient Israelite think about this stuff? What does it mean to that ancient Israelite? And when we understand how the primary audience interprets that, then we're going to get a much better grasp on what the theological message is. Look at Amos 3.2. I'm just going to read a short passage from you. You don't have to turn there. I'll, I'll read it to you. This is in the ESV. You only, you only, have I known of all the families of the earth. It's that word known. Focus on that. There are English translations that very rightly, correctly translate this a bit differently. And these two translations give us a tie between foreknowledge, knowledge and choice. For example, the NASB translates Amos 3.2, You only have I chosen of all the families of the earth. Both of these translations are correct. But the translation committee has to choose an English word, what we call a gloss for it, right? And by choosing a certain English word over another, there's a little bit that's lost in the translation. Um, But if we understand what the biblical view of knowing a person is that it's connected to this intimate relationship, then regardless of which translation we use, we know what's being said. And note that Romans 8.29 does not say, does not say, that God by his foresight knew what certain individuals would do. It's not saying that. It's not saying God saw what you were going to do. Only that he foreknew them as individuals to whom he would extend the grace of salvation. That he had a relationship, an intimate relationship with them. Think about the passages, especially in our Old Testament, where it talks about men knowing their wives. And as a result, a child is born. Well, it's not that they have an intellectual understanding of their wife, right? That's not how children come about in the world. They come about through another process. And that's what the Bible means when it talks about these men knowing these women. That they were in an intimate relationship with them. So we have to bear in mind that the, the, one of the things... I think that is really unusual, but there's a good reason for it when you think about it. The Israelite culture, the ancient Jewish culture in the ancient Near East was an extremely modest culture as compared to the other cultures around Israel, such as Egypt, the Canaanites, Babylon, Persia, where Modesty was virtually unknown. That those other cultures were very, oh, they were much like us today, very open uh, in their minds. You know, very accommodating. Um, and isn't it odd that this one historically insignificant people that are the people of God, chosen by God and given the oracles of God, apparently are the one culture that embraces modesty and purity and the uniqueness of a relationship between a man and a woman? For the most part, we see pretty blatant violations of it in the Bible, don't we? But they're pointed out as not being good. That there's ramifications, that there's sin. What I'm saying is that this is another another sign that God has has acted in history. It just doesn't make sense, I would say, from an anthropological standpoint, that these people would be so incredibly different when it comes to their sexual mores as everybody else around them. Although there is this cross-contamination of cultures, right? We see what happens when the, the Israelite men um, decide that they're going to take Moabite women as their wives, and then they become pagan uh, worshipers, worshippers of demon gods. But I do think that there's something telling there, this idea of relationships, intimate relationships. So to summarize... When the Bible speaks of divine foreknowledge, it has in view the doctrine of unconditional election. Election cannot be conditional. The the Bible tells us that very clearly, right? I could stand up here and argue the point all day and give you my views on it, which you might find interesting. But probably wouldn't be very impactful in the long run, because in, in the long run, what does it really matter what Ken thinks? What matters is what God tells us, right? And if the Bible's telling us this, then we can't argue with it. But we can you know, put in our own puny, insignificant little arguments that help carry the message along. But the Bible clearly speaks of this. So this brings us to the end of unconditional election. No, it doesn't. Brings us to the end of this section. Next time we meet, we're going to talk about a very difficult doctrine connected to unconditional election, and that is the idea of reprobation, the passing over of some. Are some created for the distinct purpose of God, that they will face damnation. How do we deal with that? Undoubtedly, if you've had discussions on this topic with friends or family, this is something eventually that's going to come up. It's not, and it's not uh, an easy topic. And it's not an enjoyable topic. It's a, it's a hard, hard topic that we, that we have to wrestle with to try and understand it. But I think it's important. So we're going to save that for next time. And... Uh, I'm going to uh, pray in closing, and we'll have a short break before the 11 o'clock service. Please join me. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for your unconditional election of your people. Apart from that, Lord, we would be lost. It's a blessing to us. Lord, help us to understand it. Help us to embrace it. Help us to see your love your divine mercy, and your sovereignty in it. Father, bless us as we go through this day. Bless the the worship service to come, Lord, that it may glorify you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.